Wednesday night, we're gonna do our continue through the Bible study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And um, on Sundays, we draw a text from that upcoming study. So why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 10 for today's study. Mark 10. Growing up on a farm, a little farm when I was a kid, uh, we had horses, cattle, sheep, rabbits, quail, chickens, uh, all kinds of critters and creatures. And uh, I had a next door neighbor buddy who was four years older than I was, but we hung out and I usually was tagging along with some of his adventures, but we had a lot of, it was kind of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn type stuff. But one of our favorite uh, pastimes in the summer was to trap animals. Uh, we had live, we had, we had, most of our traps were very humane uh, for you Portlandia people. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'd catch everything from squirrels to skunks, uh, true story. Um, but uh, uh, my dad would give me a dollar every time I trapped a gopher. Uh, and uh, we had a big field where our cows were and, and uh, just gopher mounds everywhere. And so my dad said, a dollar a gopher, which this is back in the 1970s where a dollar was actually worth something to a kid. Uh, and, um, and it was great. Now my gopher traps were, uh, were such that they were these little metal traps that had a little flap door on them, but they had these two large hooks that you'd spring with a big spring open, and then you'd put the little door up and lock the spring open, and the little unsuspecting gopher would come crawling through this hole, and he'd push through the door. I wanted to put stickers on the door, you know, say, welcome, or, you know, uh, good luck, or uh, this is not a way to get ahead, because when he'd walk through the door, the two springs would go ching right through its brains. Uh, I could always tell Portlandia people, some of you guys grew up on farms like me, and you're like, yeah, that's cool, awesome. Where their guts and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's really awesome. But you Portland people, like, oh, God's creatures. Oh. Um, no, uh, they're animals. Uh, but anyway, uh, they are God's creatures. But um, anyway, so Bucka Gopher, uh, you know, we caught baby skunks. Uh, it reminds me of a, of a story. Uh, mom was uh, there in the summertime, uh, you know, as the kids were out playing, but one afternoon they were in the living room quietly playing. Whenever kids are playing quietly, you're kind of wondering, what's up? So the mom walks out in the living room and the, her kids and some of the neighbor kid kids are all huddled in the center of the living room. And she looked and said, hey, what, what are you guys doing? And the kids looked up and the mom saw to her shock, there were five baby skunks that they were playing with in the middle of the living room. And she said, ah, kids run. And so the kids all grabbed a skunk and ran. <laughs> kind of missing the point, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but as it turns out, the idea of trapping, uh, you know, and, and a snare, the Bible actually talks about the snare that was used uh, by trappers. Uh, in Bible times, they would use a piece of small uh, wire, having a noose or, or even a, a cord, uh, having a sort of a, a, a spring-loaded contraption that would catch birds and little animals and stuff like that. But the Bible employs that imagery of the snare, or the trap, um, is something that Satan wants to do. He wants to use a snare. And the Bible talks about several kinds of snares. One, for example, is the snare of fear. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs says. And it's true. We've seen that. People that are fearful uh, unnecessarily people that are afraid of stuff that they shouldn't really be afraid of, that, that becomes a snare. And we've talked about that. We've done whole sermons on, on that kind of uh, snare. Um, but there are other snares that the Bible warns about, um, often that Satan employs to keep people from going where they need to go and doing what they need to do. And one of those snares the Bible talks about is wealth, riches. And we have that 
illustrated perfectly here in the story uh, uh, that's before us here in Mark chapter 10, how the enemy lures us in. Uh, by the way, this illustration of the snare, it's not just humanity, animals trick each other with the same kind of thing. Um, several years back, I was reading about the uh, Maculina arion, which is a butterfly uh, that's quite beautiful. It's this blue colored butterfly that flies in uh, various parts of the world. But the story of this butterfly is what's kind of interesting. Basically, the creature um, starts laying its eggs in a plant uh, when the butterfly lays its eggs in a plant. And then the plant, the eggs hatch and there's a little caterpillar that crawls down and hits the ground. And once the caterpillar's on the ground, this little brownish colored caterpillar, um, the only way it can survive is it, it uses these ants. Without these ants, this butterfly would grow extinct. So you gotta have these, kinds of, these particular kinds of ants. Uh, when such an ant meets this caterpillar, it starts to stroke the ant. The ant starts to stroke the butterfly with its antenna, or I should say the caterpillar with its antenna. And then on its 10th segment, of its, um, of its little caterpillar body. In the 10th segment, apparently the, uh, this um, substance starts to secrete out of that section of the caterpillar and the ant starts licking the substance off the caterpillar's body. Well, apparently the substance is almost like intoxicating. The ant just loves this liquid that this caterpillar excretes. Um, and so the ant picks up the caterpillar and takes it home to its buddy ants and puts it in the ant you know, uh, hill or whatever, wherever the ants are. Um, and uh, the, the caterpillar spends the winter in a special cavity uh, in the ant's nest. But by the time spring comes, it starts eating all the young ants, uh, just chomping down and growing and getting fatter and fatter. And the ants don't do anything about it because they love this secretion so much, it just consumes all their young and even starts eating some of their old. Uh, and then the caterpillar, all chubby, comes out and uh, makes its transition eventually to this beautiful butterfly. And uh, this happens, the cycle starts all over and over again. And you know, uh, nature speaks uh, in, in glorious illustrations. Some people are not much different than these ants. You see, they cherish a luxury that's for them for a moment, but it causes great injury to themselves. Um, you know, uh, the sweetness of sin, the carnage that happens afterwards. Hebrews 11, 25, you know, Moses was spoken of by the author of Hebrews saying, Moses choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's just human nature. We'll, we'll take the pleasure for the moment only to find that oftentimes those pleasurable things cause great destruction and sadness and sorrow. Satan uses that lure to snare us, to trap us to where we can't get out. And how many of those things are there? Drug addiction and, and alcoholism and all kinds of things that, oh, it's so great at first, but then it just becomes this anchor that keeps you from being where God wants you to be. One of those uh, lures and hooks and traps is this issue of wealth. We see that here in Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 17. Mark 10, 17. It says, and when he, Jesus, was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do? that I may inherit eternal life. Now, this is a good question. Um, you know, uh, hopefully you have come to that understanding that there is life after death. 
the Bible teaches, if you are curious what the Bible has to say, the Bible says that there's life and death eternal after life. In fact, the book of Revelation calls it a resurrection unto life or a resurrection unto death. Eternal death, eternal life. And uh, the, the Bible says that it's something you should be thinking about. Job and his friends, remember when they were pontificating there in the book of Job, they asked, you know, if a man dies, will he live again? And if you've had a loved one die and you've been there in a, a memorial service, or maybe you've been to one of those open casket funerals and you see the person's body and you, there's, there's, I, there's something that happens. I've talked to a lot of people in memorials when you realize that person is no longer there, but you get a sense that they are not ceasing to exist. Their body is ceasing to function um, and it will die and it, it's consumed. But where does a person go when they die? Well, this guy, this, this, this guy comes running up to Jesus, falling down before him and says, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus is about to answer his question. Now, we know who this guy is. We refer to him, uh, if you're a Bible student, you know he's the rich young ruler. We also know he's probably religious or at least pious in religious things. Um, this guy, really, when you think about it, uh, he's got it all going on. In fact, uh, we don't know that just from the one passage here in Mark, but this is told both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew is where, where we learn that he was young. Luke 18 tells us when he was a, he, that he was a ruler in the community. He was a man of influence. Um, but here in Mark, we learn that he's rich and that he's also a pious man. If you think about it, those are the things that are coveted in our culture. We value those things. Man, rich, Everybody wants to be rich. Oh, if I had more money, then I could do what I really want to do. And, I, you know, and, and we all have great plans. If I were wealthy, I would give to the poor. Which well, is funny how that doesn't always work out. But uh, if I was wealthy, I would you know, do this or that. I'd be free to not have to worry or anything like that. But it's funny, what is rich? That's a relative term. And I don't even need to say, if you're an American, you're wealthy compared to everybody else in the whole world. Well, Brett, I live in Dwalton in an apartment. Uh, yeah, but do you have a car? Uh, if you have a car and an apartment in Tualatin, you're already in the top crust of wealth of the world. Uh, you have to understand that. It's something we forget as Americans. We don't even know how wealthy we are. And wealth is just this relative term. Unless you're Bill Gates, you're not really wealthy or, or what have you, or Elon Musk or whatever. Um, but this guy's rich, but he's also young. That's another thing our culture loves. We try to capture youth, but we fail. And it gets embarrassing how bad we fail. Oh man, Botox it up, facelift, tummy tuck. Oh, you can do that till you're blue in the face or swollen in the face and it still doesn't work. Um, you can be plumped out and all that stuff with your lips and stuff. You just don't, it, let me, there's some pastoral advice to you. Don't do it. You're ruining your face. Um, uh, oh, it's so sad to watch what people are trying to do, trying to capture youth and make themselves look young. You know, we're one of the only cultures still in the world that really despises old age. Um, there's a lot of cultures that still honor the old woman and the old man and wrinkles are a, a badge of honor and experience and of wisdom. And there's still cultures that believe that. Our culture, erase that. And once you're old, you're irrelevant. Get out of our way. We don't wanna hear your opinion because you're old. That's our culture. Um, this guy has wealth, but he's also got youth, but he's also an influencer. He's a ruler in the community. This guy's got it going on. But why is he asking this? It's interesting because people that are rich and have it all go dialed in and going on, they all get a sense that that's not all there is. In fact, that that is a very shallow 
thing to love. That's not the, what you look, you, you can look for that all your life and be the wealthiest person in town, but you're still gonna find it coming up empty. So, so this guy's that way. He comes up, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, and then Jesus gives him an answer. Verse 18, Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now this, this answer Jesus gives so far has raised all kinds of questions. What's Jesus doing? And in fact, people are like, why is Jesus changing the subject? And by the way, when Jesus seems to be changing the subject, he's not. He's not changing the subject. He's actually getting to the real issue. Uh, that's something you should understand. So what's the real issue here? Well, the first thing the guy says is good master. That's what he calls Jesus. Now the word master is a different word in the ancient times or even in old English. We would say good teacher. That's what this guy is saying. Good teacher, as he's bowing down before him. Good teacher, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? Um, and Jesus starts with the good master thing. Why do you call me good? Now, some people say, what, what is Jesus not good? Well, is that what Jesus is saying? We know Jesus is good, that's obvious. But the idea is, was Jesus just a good master or good teacher? Well, if you're Oprah Winfrey, that's what you think. Oprah, who calls herself a Christian, she is not because she doesn't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth. He's just a good teacher, a good prophet, good example for us, but God is in all of us. It's very new age what Oprah believes, but she's one of these people who calls Jesus a good teacher, a good prophet. Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good and that is God. And so if you really get down to what Jesus is getting at with this rich young ruler, is this guy needs to acknowledge, first of all, that Jesus is God. He's giving this man an opportunity to take it to the next level. He's already bowing down before him. That's interesting. And then calls him a good teacher. But Jesus says, there's no one good but God. Implication, we know retrospectively and other scriptures teach us that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you see the father. I and my father are one. He was called Emmanuel. Uh, the angel said his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the, the, you know, the second part of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. It's the mystery of the Trinity and it's who God is. That's part of a person, they need to understand the gravity of who Jesus really is. And, and so Jesus isn't changing the subject, he's getting to the real issue. Because if you understand who Jesus is to begin with, that he's God who visited humanity, that changes the whole equation. So he starts with that thing. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. But then he goes on and, and now it seems like he shifts to a different point of view or argument. He says in verse 19, thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor your father and mother. And he, the rich young ruler, answered and said unto him, master, all these have I observed from my youth. Notice he didn't call him good master. He just said, master, now you say, Brett, why did Jesus only give some of the 10 commandments? Well, many scholars believe that Jesus is actually interrupted by this guy. Um, Jesus is just speaking out, well, you know, you've heard these commandments. He says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill. And before Jesus can get the 10 out, the guy's like, yeah, 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 I got that. I know that I've done that since my youth. Are you a yeah, yeah, yeah person? 
Um, I, I've met a lot of these people in years of pastoring where you wanna share something from the word with somebody who really needs to hear something and they're not, they're not listening and you start to share like, yeah, 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 I know that. I, I was ready to color the picture in Sunday school. Yeah, 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 I did that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you a yeah, yeah, yeah person? Repent. <laughs> You're probably the person that needs to slow down. You know, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Let's use them in that ratio. I think that's important. Uh, this rich young ruler is so busy and yeah, 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 I've done all that stuff. That the idea is he probably interrupts Jesus as Jesus is listing these 10 commandments. He says, I've done these, not good master, but he says, I've done these master uh, all, my, all my years from my youth. Um, now, what's interesting about this, um, on this, um, this whole thing is um, when a guy like this says that, that's pretty audacious to make the claim. I've kept all these laws I mean, it's bad enough to say I've kept all the rules of the 10 commandments, but what about all the other commandments of the Jews? Um, the Jews had a long list of commandments and this guy is basically saying, yeah, I know all those. Um, from my youth, I've kept the, the law is basically what he's saying. Um, and th is that a little bit arrogant? If I were Jesus, I'd be tempted to say, liar! Because this guy has not kept all the commandments, nor have you. We've all sinned, we all fall short. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this guy uh, saying, I've kept all these, he's not just talking about the big 10. Let me remind you of our wall of 613 Jewish laws. 613 Jewish laws. I'm sure many of you have them memorized by now because I put it up on the screen for you here a few times. Uh, these 613 laws are exact question, what does the Bible say? If you want to be righteous by keeping the law and go to heaven by the keeping of these rules, um, how many times can you break the law and still expect to go to heaven? Anybody? Zip. The Bible says if you're guilty of one, breaking just one of these laws, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's what the Bible says. That's God's perspective, which is kind of the one that matters. It's amazing how many people say, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. And you know, if God is love, like you guys claim, then he'll let me in heaven because I'm basically a good person. Well, that's a big assumption. That's the assumption this rich young ruler is making. He's assuming that he's kept all these laws and he's a pretty good person. But he's actually a sinner, just like all of us, like all of humanity. Speaking of this huge wall of laws, I remember watching uh, years ago, Larry King Live. Remember you older folks probably remember old Larry King? He was interviewing a pastor and Larry King is a Jew asking this Christian pastor, says, hey, is there any way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ? And the pastor said, yes. And I thought, oh, great. Here's one of these wacko pastors, you know, as a like, oh, brother. Um, but then I heard his, his you know, follow-up. The pastor said, here's what you need to do, Larry. Keep all of the laws of the Old Testament perfectly. And that's the only other way you can make it to heaven. And then I thought, that's brilliant. He's right. He's right. If, they, if Larry King could keep all the 613 laws perfectly his whole life without error, he could make it to heaven. That's the only way, other way to heaven. Now, you and I know the Bible says nobody has ever done that, not one person in history. There's been a lot of good Jews who have really tried, but have failed. Um, in fact, the Bible tells us no one was made righteous by keeping the law. It's, it's, it's something that people just can't do. Now, now, Jesus was the perfect fulfiller of the law. He's the only one who did. In fact, Jesus, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Um, and Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Now, because he fulfilled that, what a perfect answer that pastor gave to Larry King, the Jew, because that is appropriate. Jews 
think, well, the, the Torah, we got the, the laws of you know, Moses and, and the rules of the Jewish Bible. Um, and there's still this notion, well, if we can just do those things, then we'll be saved. I'll show you later how that doesn't work out. But no one can do this. It's impossible. There are those that think they're good enough to heaven, like this rich young ruler. He's you know, checking all the boxes. But, um, but what is this law on this wall? What is it for? What is the, you say, Brad, if we're, not, if we're not under this law and if we can't be saved by this law, what purpose does that law serve? Well, Galatians chapter three, verse 24 makes that clear. It says in Galatians 3, 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring. I think some of the newer translations even say, drive us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Justified meaning just as if you'd never sinned, all your sins erased as if they never happened. Justification, that beautiful truth of the New Testament that because of Jesus, the, the law drives us. It means it's kind of like the law is not there to crush you, but to move you to Jesus Christ. Um, have you ever seen a good sheepdog uh, who can run out there and round up a whole flock of sheep uh, and get them into a corral? Um, I, I, I think of that sheepdog and it's so fun to watch them. Is the dog there to eat the sheep? No, the dog there is to just kind of snip here and there uh, and, and make the sheep go, ooh, I don't want any part of that. So ooh, off they run. And then they eventually are herded into where they need to be. That's what the law is, the sheepdog that snips at our heels and says, if you try to do all these things, you're gonna fail. So run for your life from that. Well, where do we go? That's what the rich young ruler is asking. Where do we go that I might inherit eternal life? And the schoolmaster of the law was to drive us to Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith. So back to Mark chapter 10. Um, now what happens as Jesus um, you know, uh, says this and the guy says, I've kept all these things, check, check and check. How does Jesus respond? Does he say, liar, loser, nincompoop? That's what I would have said. But Jesus does shockingly the opposite. It says there in verse 21, then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him. Now, now pause before we hear what Jesus says to him. What does he do? He beholds him, it says in the King Jimmy, and then loved him. What does that mean? Um, uh, what it means, the Greek words are interesting. The Greek word for beholding is not just looking. Some of your newer translations say look. This says beholding. But the idea, the word that's used there in the Greek language is to look thoughtfully and deeply, like look deeply into someone. Some of you have seen people or know people, or maybe you're one of those people that are able to look deep within people's souls. Sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. Um, was this a, a deep look into the soul of disdain? of you know, total disgrace? Was Jesus just looking at him deep into his soul like what a loser? No, it says he looked into his soul, if you would, thoughtfully and loved him. And the word loved is agape. Um, that is godly, Christian, kind of perfect, unconditional love. That's the eyes that Jesus had when he looked at this rich young ruler. Now, this is amazing to me because we know the end of this story. And, you know, of all the people that come up to Jesus, have you ever thought about how many people, everybody was healed, saved, raised from the dead. Like if you were a blind person, your sight would restore. If you were uh, full of leprosy, you'd be healed and cleansed. Everybody seems to get helped by Jesus. Who's the one guy that comes up to Jesus for help and walks away without help and is not saved? It's the rich young ruler. 
This is one of the few people that actually have an encounter with Jesus Christ personally, but does not follow, does not believe. Why? Because he's ensnared by something that we'll see, wealth. We'll see that in a second. But even though he's not even gonna be saved, isn't it interesting that Jesus still looks at him deeply into his soul with agape, godly, perfect love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, even the godless heretic weirdo. It's so shocking to me as a Christian who loves the cross of Jesus Christ um, and the love that Christ has for me and the way he looks at you and me with that same agape, it makes me so saddened and grieved when I see the world mock Jesus and the cross. Um, you know, Christianity is the only religion you can mock and make fun of. You can make a cross into a stripple pole and have it in front of a Dodgers game with the nuns of indulgences. You can have record recording artists, some of the things your kids are listening to, mom and dad, that you don't even realize. They got their bodies naked, tied by ropes on the cross. That's the cover of their record. Um, uh, and they're, they're Grammy award-winning artists, um, people mocking Jesus, you know, all the time. Did you ever see Connor, um, McConnor, uh, what is it, Greg? Gregor McConnor, Gregor, whatever. Yeah, that dude. Did you see him interviewed when he, um, when he was boasting that if Jesus came back, he could beat him in the ring in the octagon? He, you know, uh, you know. Um, his career pretty much tanked after that. I think that's kind of hilarious. Uh, he, he's not that, he, you know, he could, he'd go back in the you know, FC and still get beat up and stuff. Like, um, I, I think it's not good for your career to mock Jesus, just, just heads up. But as a Christian, um, you know, Jesus is the one who loved us. He looks at this loser, this sinner, and he looks at him with agape. That's, that's moving to me. A young lady walked into a fabric shop and went to the counter and asked the owner for a bolt of fabric. She was looking for noisy, rustling white material. The owner found such bolts, two of them in the back of the store and was rather puzzled at the young lady's request and what was her motive. Uh, why would anyone want several yards of noisy white material? Um, so finally, his curiosity got the best of him. And uh, he asked the young lady, why did you want this noisy cloth? And she answered, you see, she said, I'm making a wedding gown and my fiance is blind. And when I walk down the aisle, I want him to know when I've arrived at the altar so he won't be embarrassed. Um, I like that story because, you know, um, that's, that's kind of a love, this, this kind of love a woman would have for her husband like that. Um, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the Bible calls the church, us, his bride, he's the bridegroom. What has he done to not make us feel awkward walking down the aisle? You know, you and I are called the bride of Christ. I see some pretty ugly brides here in the church uh, today, uh, myself included. Here comes the bride, whoo. But good news, Christ, he washes us in the water of his word and saves us and restores us and heals us from all our sins and, and all our depravity. And he makes that which is ugly into beauty. And that's why we're called the bride of Christ. And it's because Christ loved us. Man, even when being corrected, Jesus is gonna lovingly correct this guy's wrong thinking. He's gonna attempt to correct this guy's wrong thinking. Uh, but the love, he, he looks at this rich young ruler with agape. That's shocking to me. Well, then it goes on um, after Jesus looks at him like that in verse 21, it continues. And he said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. This guy was a wealthy man. And the one thing Jesus said, this is the one thing that you're lacking is your willingness to let go 
of your wealth. Um, and what's interesting is you maybe have heard sermons. There's been misuse of this scripture. Sell all you have and give to the church. And then I'll go buy a mansion and a jet. I mean, how many times have you heard, you know, that give till it hurts, uh, you know, uh, and if you give to those ministries, please don't. Uh, man, uh, that's just evil. Uh, the, you know, these old, these old ladies and old men writing letters and sending their thousand dollar gift to a church um, that's just, you know, uh, rolling in the money and, and all this. That, that's something, you know, remember the 80s, the televangelists? Many of those guys got found out and uh, rightly so. Uh, but, but they use scriptures like this. The Bible says, sell all your possessions, like the rich young ruler story. Is this for everyone? Well, the, the answer is no. Uh, we know that because the Bible talks about people that are rich in the Bible and it doesn't say, give all your money. It gives some words. I'll even show you some scriptures about what happens if you're rich and things to watch out for if you happen to be a wealthy person. And it doesn't always say, give everything. There are times and occasions where I think people are called to give up all their wealth. Um, and I don't know who that, who that is and I would never presume to tell you if that's you. But I do know people that are amazing people that the Lord put that on their heart and they did that. One of my favorite stories of that is a guy named Jerry Swanson, who a friend of mine who, uh, very wealthy, uh, when he was at his peak of earning, he had you know, a huge house and we would call it a mansion probably, and a very wealthy guy, but had the call to sell all his stuff, get rid of his things and, and give to the poor. And literally he would, sell all this stuff, fly over to Burkina Faso, Africa, the poorest country in the world, the least caloric intake of any people in the world. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records, the, the most starving country in the world, Burkina Faso. And he would go there and build churches and feed people with food and, and just preach the gospel. And then when he'd run out of money, you're like, what is he gonna do? Well, he'd, he'd fly back home with his last dollars and then come back and earn $2 million in three months and then come back and like, he just, it's like he had this knack of earning tons of money. He knew how to do that. And it's almost like the more he'd give the money, the more God just, he couldn't give it away fast enough. And some of you know this to be true, that you cannot outgive God. Um, and Jerry's one of those examples. I was always marveling at how he just had a knack. He'd earn a couple million dollars and then go back and give it all away. Um, uh, how many of you guys have learned that lesson that you, got, you cannot outgive God? Anybody here? Yes, three of you, that's good. Um, last service, <laughs> anyway, um, no. Yeah, that, that, that's an important lesson to learn. But, but it doesn't mean that all of you are called to that. Uh, and if a pastor tells you that you're all called to that, uh, you can walk away and say, that's not biblically sound. Uh, don't let people misuse scripture. But some people are called to that. And I think this rich young ruler was. His, his snare that was keeping him from being a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, was that he would not let go of his wealth. And you have to ask the question, what, what is it that you are unwilling to let go of um, that keeps you from following Jesus, from being a Christian, a believer? Is it pride? Oh, I happen to know that God doesn't exist, or I happen to know that evolution, or I happen to know that your arrogance of your knowledge uh, well, that'll keep you from Jesus. That's a snare. Um, is it your wealth? Is it your pride? Is it some secret sin that you possess that you're unwilling to let go of? Because you think if I become a Christian, I'll have to stop doing that. I know that. And if you know that, you're saying, I don't want any part of that. Uh, the problem is Jesus will let you do it. 
Jesus let this guy go. In fact, let's, let's read. It says, you know, you, you know if, you, if you give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. And by the way, if you are a wealthy person, that's something to think about. You can't take it with you, but Jesus says you can send it up into heaven. If you invest it to the poor and to the needy, you can uh, send your um, uh, treasure in heaven. So take up your cross, follow me. Verse 22, very sad. It says, and he, the rich young ruler, was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Notice that Jesus doesn't chase after this guy. Hey, wait, Mr. Rich Young Ruler. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Listen to me, I'm God. He doesn't do that. He just speaks the truth, but this guy, he, he lets him go. And by the way, Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He will not beat you down. He will not chase you down. He'll present his truth. That's what's happening here at church. We're presenting the truth of the word of God that comes from Jesus Christ. And as you hear it, you can either listen to it or you, or you cannot listen to it. It's up to you. Nobody's gonna twist your arm. It's, it truly is uh, in your free will to choose whether you're gonna reject Christ and cling to your snare or, um, or uh, repent and turn to Christ. That's up to you. Um, this is really a sad thing. And really the story we'd say, the end right there. This is the end of the story. Jesus knew the snare, that he wasn't gonna leave his riches behind. And so it seems like that's the end of the story. But what we see now in the next verse, verse 23, Jesus starts to use this as a teaching moment for his disciples. And it's a little bit shocking how Jesus takes this even further. Check it out, verse 23. And Jesus looked round about and said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? That's just King James' way of saying, it's really hard for a rich person to make it to heaven as the guy's walking away weeping. And one of the other texts tells us he went away weeping because he knew he wasn't gonna give away his money. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, well, look what the disciples say in verse 24. The disciples were astonished at his words. They're like, oh man, this is really, really bad. If it's really, really hard for rich people, you can almost hear the disciples, I wonder how hard it is. Well, Jesus says it again. Why does Jesus say it again? When you hear Jesus say something twice, it's an exclamation point. And, they, and look at what he says in verse 24, as the disciples are astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith to them, children, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are confused right now because if you have a newer translation, it doesn't say what my King Jimmy just said. Uh, the King James says the same thing as verse 23. It's like an identical repeat, only it adds um, how hard it is for them that trust in riches. Yours, some of your newer translations doesn't say that. Why? Uh, is the Bible full of errors? Um, people get all up in a tizzy on stuff like this, translational issues. Don't be perturbed by translational issues. Translational issues are fun to explore and study. And when something's not in one and is in another, it's worth studying and figuring out why. Looking at the original Greek text is a blast and you can learn so much about that. But I just wanna say all the mainline translations that we have, um, they're all pretty good. They're all pretty good. If you really wanna read the real New Testament, you have to read the King James. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Some of you guys are like, oh, the reason some of you aren't laughing, there's a whole group called the King James only people. They say it's the last anointed translation. I don't agree with that. Um, there's a lot of King James only people that go to Athey Creek because I'm the, one of the last pastors that's still clinging to the King James. But I, I do love the King James. In 1611, 
they got together some amazing scholars. The, 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 the Greek and Hebrew scholars that the King James put together in 1611 were outstanding and they did a wonderful job translating the Bible. Um, but the newer translations are helpful too. And I would encourage you, if you're a person who listen, you know, reads the ESV, I like the ESV, I use that a lot. Or the NIV, um, I like the, the pre-19, what is it, 1984 NIV is better because they started messing around with gender stuff after the NIV, the newer NIV. I, I kind of would steer you away from that maybe. Um, but a, a New American Standard version, uh, you know, we've got so many good translations. Um, and you say, Brett, well, if, if my New International leaves that phrase out, then the Bible's full of wrong mistakes. Don't let people tell you that. Here's what happened on the translation on that. And this is a good example. And the reason I'm camping out on this is it's a good moment to, to notice something. And that is, if you're like reading an NIV or some of the newer translations, they use a different set of ancient manuscripts than the King James guys did. Um, and what, what that is, is um, some of the older manuscripts say things just slightly different than maybe the more numerous manuscripts. We have tons of manuscripts. That's one of the things that's really cool. Tons of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Which ones you use for translation is, is the one you question. And so they're different ones. And so they're slightly different things. Here's the good news you can breathe with easy because um, there's no main doctrine or theology of an essential doctrine that you read in a King James or an NIV or a New American Standard that's gonna change your doctrine or theology. They're just nuancy things. And also, I love how the Bible covers itself. So like in my, in my King Jimmy here, it says, uh, Jesus says, and those that, it's hard for that rich man, and those that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now here's a question. Does the Bible in other places say that you're not supposed to put your trust in riches? Hello? Yes. All over the Bible, it says, don't put your trust in uncertain riches. I'll show you one of those in a minute. Um, so it's, if, if, if it was showing us something that was doctrinally different or new or contradictory, then we should be concerned. But there's nothing like that in the translational issues. Um, we can all be saved with solid doctrine uh, as you read whatever translation is a main line. Now watch out for the New World Translation because it's not a translation. The Jehovah's Witness, those boys in Brooklyn rewrote some of the Bible to fit their wacko doctrine. So don't listen to the New World. That's not a translation, even though they call it that. It's a tweak. Same with the Book of Mormon, that's a tweak. Uh, they tweaked the Bible uh, and didn't really translate the Bible. That's important for you to know that stuff. Uh, so all that to say, uh, don't be stumbled by the translational issues. But I do think it's, it's an interesting that Jesus says something in the King James translation from this, uh, where it says, you know, the same thing, how hard it is for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So when he first said it, the disciples were astonished. You can almost hear them saying, how hard is it? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, now, you know, you might think it's a, putting a camel through an eye of a little needle is bad enough, but um, it is true. In Jerusalem, there is a, an ancient gate that was around Jerusalem. I, I looked for it for years and never found it. And one time I was walking with Debbie and some people from Athe were walking through the old city of Jerusalem and there was this Russian Orthodox church and it was called the Church of the eye of the needle. And 
so we asked about it and the, the Russian priest was there. He's like, yeah, I have the needles down here. So we went down into the, the church and below the church, and you, you go up against the ancient wall of Jerusalem. And you can always tell when you're seeing the ancient wall and it's dug down. And at the bottom of the ancient wall, there was this little door, kind of like the door into your attic. You know, when you have a little door in your attic that you kind of have to bend over and crawl in to get in. That's the kind of door, this gate, the eye of the needle gate was. Um, now, what was that for? Uh, in ancient times, at nighttime, they'd close the huge gates. You know, it'd take 30 people to close the gate of Jerusalem and close it, lock it, so that if there were marauders or robbers or um, an army that was, you know, besieging the city, it couldn't come into the city. But if you'd been pruning your olive trees uh, and you wanted to get in after they closed the gates, you'd have to tie your camel to a, to a tree and then you'd crawl into the eye of the needle back into the city to go to your house and go to sleep at night. And they could control the coming and going of this little gate um, so they made it really tiny. Now I walked through that gate. They should pay me because I kind of squeegeed off the sides for them. It was, it was very tight. Uh, I was like, Ey! now Debbie walked through, no problem. You guys, some of you do jumping jacks as you went through. But for me, it was a tight squeeze. But I looked and you know, I got to ride a camel a few days earlier and I realized you still can't get a camel through that. If it's the eye of a needle literally, or if it's the gate of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, either way, I only know one way to do that, a, bl a blender and a funnel. That's how you get the camel through the eye of the needle. It's not good for the camel. What's your point, Brett? The point is Jesus is using this analogy to say, it's impossible. Wow, it's impossible? Is that what Jesus said? Well, it's easier. it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what happens? It says the disciples, verse 26, they were astonished out of measure. That's just King James' way. The first time their minds were blown when he said it's, you know, uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Their minds were blown. Now their minds are blown out, completely out of the universe when it says uh, the, you know, the camel thing. And they say, oh, uh, they're astonished out of major saying among themselves, who then can be saved? They're, they're rhetorically in their mind saying, wow, if it's, if it's that hard for a rich man, uh, which you gotta understand, do you, do you understand the disciples are probably thinking of themselves as rich men? I know that's foreign to us because they were, we would have said they were abject poverty, fishers from Galilee and their little homes they had and stuff like that. But they considered themselves part of that rich group. And if Jesus is saying how hard it is, impossible, camel through the eye of the needle, then they're thinking, well, then who can be saved? Now this is where Jesus has them right where he wants them. This is where you need to be. You and I need to get to the place where we think it's impossible. That's the whole point. Jesus wants you to know that for you to have eternal life with your strength, your effort, your goodness, it's impossible. And it's almost like Jesus leaves the disciples hanging on that one for a minute. And then it says, verse 27, Jesus looking upon them said, with men, it is impossible, but not with God, for with God, all things are possible. So the disciples are starting to freak out. Who then can be saved? Hey, guys, don't worry. It is impossible for you. But with God, all things are possible. What kept the rich young ruler from being saved and having eternal life? Well, it wasn't God. That's gonna be the biggest shock to some of these people. Well, if God is love, then, then I'll get to heaven by my good. No, you're making a decision to not tap into the only way to heaven. And you think you're doing it well, but you're actually going like the rich young ruler. It's a snare 
that's gonna get you. Uh, James, the author of uh, you know, the book of James, he said, go to now you rich men. He's talking to rich people right here. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered. The, the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Um, the last days, will your financial portfolio be valuable in the tribulation period if you're not a Christian? Oh, Brett, I'll, I'll be okay. I'm very diversified. I got gold, silver, Bitcoin. I've invested in all kinds of uh, diverse things. Uh, do you realize um, how easily everything can fall apart? I think if you're old enough, you're probably starting to realize that. Um, because man, if there's one thing that's certain is riches are uncertain. Uh, and you never really know, even, even everything can change. And the Bible says in the tribulation, everything will change financially. Everything's gonna change. You will not be able to buy or sell with your little financial portfolio uh, um, unless you take a mark of a beast and worship this coming world leader that's happening. That's what the Bible says. Um, so your riches, in, in a way, James is saying, you know, you're, like, you're only fattening yourself up for the end times. In fact, if you keep reading after verse uh, three, in verse four, it goes on and says, behold, the hire of the laborers have reaped down your fields, people that work for you, um, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth, and the cries of them which have reaped and entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, you have lie, uh, lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wanting. In other words, you're living in pleasure, but you're, you're not a heavyweight, you're a lightweight. Um, you have nourished your hearts as of the day of slaughter, you know, fattening yourself up for the kill. You have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. This is the rich young ruler. Jesus didn't resist the rich young ruler from going his way and doing his thing. Getting rich, you know, uh, if you're not careful, you could be just fattening yourself up for the last days and for the end times. That's what this passage is. Paul had a lot to say to young Timothy, his protege. Uh, Timothy was mentored by Paul the apostle. And, and interestingly enough, Paul talked about wealth and riches a lot to Timothy. For example, uh, in 1 Timothy 6, verses nine and 10, but they that be, will be rich will fall into temptation and a snare. This is that snare thing that we keep talking about, that wealth can be a snare to you. And, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For what does it say here? For, the, for, for, for money is the root of all evil? Nope, it says for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not just money is the root of all evil, it's the love of money. And many there be that fall into temptation and a snare. So why would Paul make the idea of wealth and riches such a warning? Well, there's a little bit of a story there. Paul as a missionary went into the city of Ephesus. And when we go on our, uh, Paul's missionary journeys trips, uh, it's been pretty fun, Athey Creek, we, it's not like our Israel trip. We, we rent basically a whole clipper ship uh, it's a huge ship and the, everybody that's on there is Athey Creekers. Uh, 55 sails it's this, and we're sailing through the Aegean Sea. Total classy, it's pretty fun. But we stop off in Greece and other places. One of the places we go is Ephesus. And uh, I've been to a lot of archeological digs around the world. Ephesus is probably the most fascinating, amazing archeological dig in the world, if you ask me. They dug up the city of Ephesus um, back to the first century when Paul was there. 
and they were filthy rich. The people of Ephesus, does anybody know, quiz time for you, you know, archeological students or Bibles buffs, do any of you guys know, why was Ephesus so filthy rich? Huh? It's because of the goddess Diana. What? Yeah, the goddess Diana was this multi-breasted god, goddess, that people came from all over the world to worship in Ephesus. They had to build one of the most amazing, one of the ancient wonders of the world is this bank that they found. It was a bank in Ephesus that held all their money. They were so rich. And when you go through the town, looking at it today in archeological, they had fancy homes. It's like, uh, they, they, I mean, people in Lake Oswego by the lake might even trade their homes in for some of these places. Some of these places had whole spas in their home. They had a tepidorium, which is the medium temperature, humididorium, which is like a, um, a steam sauna kind of thing. And they had a frigidarium where they would go and get in freezing water. And it was so, in their house. They'd just go and, and sit in like little jacuzzis and stuff. Uh, and they had mosaics and pictures on the walls and mosaics on the floor. Fancy, fancy houses. It's an amazing place to see. But the reason they were so rich is because they would people came and paid them to worship in the temple of the goddess Diana and the people made wealthy money from that. Plus the silversmiths would make these little goddesses, uh, multi-breasted goddesses and sell them to the tourists. Well, Paul the apostle comes walking into Ephesus, big city, starts preaching the gospel and the whole city repents pretty much and becomes Christian, almost everyone. And so what happens, oh, wonderful, Paul must have been really popular. Well, the, the silversmiths who made all their money, all the people who made money, from the goddess Diana were totally ticked off. So they start a riot in the theater that you can actually go visit the amphitheater that's there today. In that theater, they start a riot against Paul and they, 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 they wanna kill him. And they literally drive Paul the apostle out of town. Uh, he can't go back to Ephesus. So what does he do? He trains up young Timothy, says, I dubbed the pastor. Now go to Ephesus and be their pastor. God bless you, bro. Like that, that's, that's what Paul does. He sends Timothy into Ephesus. And that's why he says, Timothy, you know, they that will be rich will fall. In fact, let me show you another one. There's more of that. Like in 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded or prideful, nor trust in uncertain riches. Remember Jesus said that in the King James, not to trust in riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So if you're a wealthy person, maybe the Lord has given that to you richly to enjoy, but whatever you do, don't be prideful, high-minded. Don't put your trust in those riches. One of the snares is to keep you from Christ and keep you from knowing the Lord because you're successful, wealthy, and you think you've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you alone have made it happen. Nope, wealth, if you're wealthy, you gotta recognize where it comes from. Job was a wealthy man, I mentioned him last week. Job was a wealthy man and lost it all. And he said, naked came I in from my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had the right perspective. You could have it or you can lose it. But if we're wealthy, you might ask yourself, am I good wealthy or am I bad wealthy? Bad wealthy looks like greed and pride. Um, good wealthy looks like benevolence and giving and humility. Um, G Jesus says it's impossible for a rich man to enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Um, by the way, this is kind of an interesting thing to think about. 
Um, Jesus says a rich man and the whole camel thing. But I wonder, you know, when, when we see what Jesus puts here, and there's, there's, you know, it's easier for a camel to thrive a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What about this? What if you put in a poor man? Is this still statement true? It's still easier for a camel to go through Ivan Hill than for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God? Well, I'm gonna say that's still true. Why? Because did you know it's still impossible for a poor man to enter the kingdom of God apart from Christ? It's impossible. Um, and we could go on and on. Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the Ivan Hill than a Portlander. <laughs> or, or you specifically, you can put your name in there, or me, um, or anyone with a pulse. Any person that's in the world, you can say, yeah, it's impossible for you to get yourself into heaven. That's the truth. Well, Brett, then why would Jesus say this about just the rich man? Here's what I believe. Um, Jesus is pointing out that a poor man maybe is a little different in that the poor man usually knows he has a need of something. He lacks something. He's in trouble. And poor people tend to turn to the Lord easier, I think, than rich people. Rich people forget they have a need spiritually. And so they think they're rich, but they're really poor. We'll talk about more of that next week when we get there, but this delusional riches that we tend to think, I'm rich, but we're really poor. Um, but what's, what's Jesus saying? I think that the snare that the Bible talks about is why a rich man, it's even, you might even say more difficult than a, than a poor man because he's snared by his wealth. The poor man doesn't have that snare. It's still impossible for him to be saved by himself but the rich man is the one with the snare. And that's why you and I are only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, you could jot this down, Ephesians chapter two, uh, verses eight through 10, or you can turn there quickly if you want to. But um, this is a key passage on this topic. Um, people miss this all the time. And Ephesians chapter two, it says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is so important. Uh, how are we saved? Ephesians 2, eight through 10. We're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Could the Bible be any more clear? You can't do one thing to add to your ability to be saved. That comes from Christ alone. We're saved by grace uh, through faith. Uh, now, some of you, I know before I leave that point, some of you say, Brett, cheap grace. You can't just accept Christ and then expect to be saved. You gotta do something. There needs to be evidence of that. You need to be obedient uh, to be saved. Watch out, you're dealing with dangerous territory when you start saying you have to be obedient to be saved. Obedience will be an evidence of being saved by grace through faith. That's why he says, it's not of yourselves, not of works, thus any man should boast. But I'll agree, we are his workmanship. Once you become a Christian, Christ starts working in you to do good works, um, which God has before ordained. So when you're saved by grace, one of the byproducts of that is you'll be saved and then start to do good works. Um, so I love the notion of grace. That's how we're saved. And don't say cheap grace to me because I'm gonna tell you, grace is free. Yeah, that's what Ephesians 2 says. It was free, but it didn't come cheaply. See, some people wanna to try to add to the heaviness of grace by making sure you better not sin. Even Paul anticipated people like you. Should we continue in sin and let grace abound? He says, God forbid. If you have that mentality, you gotta do works and you gotta see obedience. No, actually you're gonna be saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. And then 
after a person's saved, in time, over process of period, the Lord will start doing good works. Um, I love the, the word grace. If you look at it as an acronym, you can sort of help define it. And I like this definition, especially in the context of wealth. God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that, G-R-A-C-E. That's what we get, God's riches. Um, the Bible even asks us rhetorically, are you rich in Christ? Um, you have to ask yourself that, or are you just rich with money? Um, grace is understanding we can't save ourselves, no matter how loaded you are with money. And man, the idea of knowing this, it keeps us humble. Um, if we boast about anything, we should boast that we're saved by grace through faith. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet uh, kind of played with this. He said, thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his strength. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. If you're gonna boast in something, don't boast in your riches or your might or your wealth or your glory. Uh, glory in this, that you know Jesus who saves you by his grace. Can I have you turn to one more passage and then we'll pack it up? Romans chapter 10. Would you flip over there real quick? I'd, if you, I like getting people to turn in their Bibles once in a while. It's important. Uh, and I'd like you to see this one with your own eyes in your own Bible. Um, Romans chapter 10. Uh, Paul sort of talks about a little bit of all the stuff we've talked about this morning, the law and being saved by rules, but how you're really truly saved is by grace through faith. And Paul sums it up perfectly here in Romans chapter 10, verse one. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. Like, like, in other words, the Jews, he's saying, don't understand how righteous God really is. So they think they're being good enough with their Jewish laws, but you're ignorant of how righteous God really is and what he expects. For they, verse three, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. For verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. For everyone that believes in Christ the end of the law is done. Uh, fast forward to verse nine. He continues and says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there's no difference between the Jew, the Greek, the same Lord over all, rich who call upon the Lord, upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew or Greek, Gentile, rich or poor, no matter who you are, if you wanna be saved, it says it right here, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, the God raised him up from the dead and it says you will be saved. And it says very clear, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's by grace. God's just goodness. He would have saved that rich young ruler in a millisecond had he just repented of his sin, let go of the snare that was keeping him from Christ. But instead he went away unsaved. God forbid anybody goes away from this service today as we've read the words of Jesus here, 
with still hardened hearts and unsaved souls. If that's you, I would invite you to accept Jesus Christ, to confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. Would you bow your heads please with me as we close down this service? Uh, just and, and if you would, if you're a Christian, would you be in prayer? Because this is an important moment in the service. And that is, if you're not a Christian, if you'd like to accept Jesus, I would love to pray that prayer of confession of faith that Romans 10, verse nine and 10 told us, confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, free gift. And you can, whatever thing that's trapped you or kept you from being a Christian, it's time to turn your back on that and turn to Jesus Christ and just be saved by his grace through faith. There's no better way to live on this earth than to be saved by grace through faith. And if that's you, I'm not gonna make you sign up for anything or get out in front of anybody, but right where you're sitting, if you're saying, Brett, I'd like to confess that declaration of faith, which, which by the way, in the Bible terms, that's what really declares you as a Christian, not by being good enough or going to church enough or giving money or any of that stuff. The way you're saved is this confession of faith, believing in Jesus. Um, and then the one who calls out on the name of Jesus will be saved. If, that, if that's you and you want that, I'd love to pray that with you. But can I ask of you just so I can know if there's anybody here, would you acknowledge that by looking up at me and just, and just raising your hand until I see you? And, and just, I wanna just acknowledge some of you guys that are saying yes this morning. Cool, awesome, good, good. You right there. Let me just look around. I don't wanna miss anybody uh, this morning. I know there's a lot of people here in the room. Cool, awesome. Way back here, I see you. Good, awesome. Anybody else? Right there, good. Oh, there, <laughs> awesome, awesome. I love it, great. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession of faith. Good, I see you right there, good. Uh, I'm gonna pray this, would you church family, let's pray this out loud together. Let's get behind these folks who are saying yes to Christ this morning. Let's pray this prayer of confession, pray this with me. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, would you just wrap your loving arms around these people who've just confessed this today? Lord, may they know their sins are forgiven, not by anything they've done, but because of your beautiful, loving work that you did on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that they'd learn to just grow in faith and trust in you. And Lord, for all of us, even the people who've been saved for many years, may we let go of those snares that might keep us from doing your will and walking in your path. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.